0: Well, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. So good uh, to be with you, to have the opportunity to worship together. If we haven't met, my name is Paul, and I'm the teaching pastor here at LifePoint Church in Marion. Again, so grateful to be with you. I think um, it's always just a helpful reminder uh, to say, hey, LifePoint, we are one church. We meet in six different locations. Uh, One of those locations being here in Marion, where we gather to sing praises to Jesus, to sit under his word, and learn about who Jesus is. And so again, so grateful to be with you. If you were a guest this morning, uh, again, so grateful that you're here. One thing that we would ask of you uh, in our time together at some point before you leave, in front of you are some QR codes. If you pull out your phone, open up the camera app, uh, scan one of those QR codes, it will direct you to lpguest.com. If you would fill out a digital guest information card, uh, we would love that because one, we'd get to connect with you, uh, but we'd also get to donate $5 to one of our partner uh, ministries, which would be amazing. I just want to give you an example of what that looks like and how that works. And so across all campuses uh, this morning, uh, teaching pastors are saying the same thing. And at the end of the year, what's really cool is all of those different ministries that have been selected throughout the year in those guest cards, we get to write a check to one of our, our partner ministries. And so this week I got to send money uh, to Voice of Hope uh, for all of the guest cards submitted across campuses. It was like two hundred 40 guest cards across campuses, and we got to spend $5 each. We got to send a check to Voice of Hope. And so that's just a really cool thing we get to do. And so guests, we'd love for you to be a part of that uh, if you would. Yeah, that's super cool. Yep, I agree. Um, all right, so today uh, we are closing out a series uh, called um, Broken Mirrors. And in this series, I know we, uh, if, if you've been along for the ride, uh, what we have seen, the structure of this series, if you will, is we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11 and I've given a somewhat of a, a um, context of Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews is writing to this Hebrew people, this scattered group that used to be followers of Judaism who are now followers of Jesus and they're undergoing severe persecution and they're beginning to question, is Jesus worth it? Should I continue to follow Jesus? And what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying, yes, and here's why. He, he is saying over and over again that Jesus is sufficient, that it is through Jesus that you can access God. It is through Jesus that you've received the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus is our great high priest, which would, made, would have made a lot of sense to a primarily Jewish audience, saying all of these things. And then in chapter 11, what he's doing is he's giving example after example of people who had faith in God, because it is through faith that we please God, scriptures would say, it is through faith that the Old Testament believers, uh, they received their commendation, which really means it was through faith. And that word commendation, I remember I defined it week one, because I was like, I don't really know what that means. But commendation essentially means God views them as acceptable. God is pleased by them through faith. And it is faith in Jesus that makes us pleasing to God. And so that's sort of the structure in a sense, but... Those passages in Hebrews chapter 11, they've really been diving boards into a different portion of the scripture, right? He's referencing these Old Testament stories. And so what we've done is say, okay, here's the Old Testament story in Hebrews 11 in the New Testament context. Let's look at it in its original context. And then we're adding a third layer. It's like a three-layer cake. Uh, We are adding this layer of core values, seeing how these stories of faith really illustrate and provide examples for us of what our core values uh, of of our church are. Our core values, these things, they're never gonna change. We might have different strategies in the future if that means we can reach more people and share the gospel with more people, but core values remain the same. We've got five of them, just by way of reminder, and we use an acronym called GRASP, G-R-A-S-P. And those five core values, gospel identity, reaching priority, authentic community, spiritual intimacy, personal ministry. And so what we've done back in week one, we saw how gospel identity means that we are new. Gospel identity means we have an understanding that we are undeniably flawed by sin and yet unbelievably loved at the cross. Everything in the Christian life flows out of an understanding of sin, that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior, and that Jesus is that Savior. From there, we went into reaching priority. Reaching priority really means that we are missionaries. What that means is if you are a believer in Jesus, God wants to use you to share the gospel, to reach people around you for the glory of Christ and for your good. All of us are missionaries. Then we went into authentic community. Authentic community means we are family. God has built us together, this one body, knit together by the Holy, of, the Holy Spirit of God, to exist and to, to live in the world. We do this through the context of Sunday morning gathering and worship. And we, we gather large and then we gather small through the context of life group where we meet in one another's homes and we really walk alongside one another. Last week, you would think the natural sort of progression is, is to go to the S, uh, which would be spiritual intimacy, but we jumped to the P. So we changed our, our acronym a little bit. And so the, the, the acronym of this series has been GRAPS, which sounds like an intestinal issue. Um, so we went to P last week, which is personal ministry, which means we all have a role to play. Right? Every single one of us, we are servants. We have a role to play. And this week then, we're rounding things out with our final value of spiritual intimacy. And really what we're doing in this is we're seeing how we are his. Through faith in Jesus, we are his. Now, how do we walk through that? That's where we get to go to the word of God, see what it has to say, and allow it to shape us and to teach us. And so given that, if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to pray for us first, uh, and then we'll get into the text. Father, uh, we praise you for the opportunity to be together this morning. We don't neglect just what a blessing that is, or or take for granted what a blessing that is. Father, as we open your word, you, you promise us that it is living and active, and it can pierce us. And so God, I ask that you would make that The reality for us this morning that the word of God would pierce our hearts in such a way that we would become more and more like you, Jesus. We would be obedient people shaped by the word of God for your glory, for our good. Please, Father, help me communicate your word clearly. Take from me anything that you don't want me to say and give to me anything that you do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to pick right up in verse 5. It says this, by faith... Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's our diving board in a sense. And I think we might, it could be easy to miss because we don't think about these things. It says it says that, that God had taken him. Literally, what this is saying is that Enoch had such a relationship with God that God decided to just go ahead and not allow Enoch to experience death, but just take him. Again, we, this is just a foreign concept in our minds. Right? He's walking along. All of a sudden, God's like, I desire you. You're, you're walking in a pleasing manner to me. I am going to take you. So Enoch does not experience death. He is with God. There's two examples that we have this. Elijah the prophet and Enoch. This is a rare occurrence. Enoch pleases God. Now, we're not given a lot of detail there. Frankly, it's like, all right, what do I do with that? That seems like a really important thing. Like, how could I be so pleasing to God that I could just be taken on up? I feel like we need a little bit more information. So to get a little bit more information, let's go over to Genesis chapter 5. So again, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. We're actually going to be in chapter four first to set a little bit of context. Um, but we get the story of Enoch in just a few more details. Again, how is it that he just got taken on up? I mean, let's not, let's not just overlook that. That's a tremendous deal. And so that's what we're really going to start digging into. So a little bit of context. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, if you recall, in week 1 of this series, as we talked about gospel identity and the story of Cain and Abel, we, we were in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, what we see here is that after the tragedy of Abel's murder by his brother Cain, Cain murders his, his younger brother, the second-born uh, child in the world, and then we see we're given this genealogy of, of Cain, and it goes one after the other after the other, and we'll pick it up in verse 23. Uh, about five generations after Cain, it says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilha, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. It's an interesting way to talk to your spouse. But anyway, he says this. Uh, it seems like he's a, not a great dude. He says, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. So we saw Cain, this ancestor of Lamech, murdered his brother. Then we see five generations, brokenness, tragedy, pain, is still in this family line, if you will. And the reason I want to shape that and give that context to us is because it's, it's almost as if if the author, which is Moses here in this instance, is saying, here, here's one family line, and now I want to give you the other family line in a bit of context and, and contrast. And so we are then going to turn to chapter 5, and what we're going to see is there's another genealogy. And I know you were hoping this morning when you came in we would read genealogies, because I know those are our favorite things. And so we're going to pick up, you're welcome, we're going to pick up in verse 3. It says this, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. All right, so Adam and Eve come together again. They have a, another baby almost to replace uh, Abel. His name is Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. It's a long time. Long, long. I just want you to imagine, like, you go to the family reunion, and you're like six generations separated from Adam, and you're like, isn't that the guy? Like, yeah, that's him. That's the guy who screwed everything up, right? Like, it's just crazy, right? Just think about the reality. Sometimes I think we miss these little details in the Bible. It's like, just think about that for a minute. You're at the family reunion, and you're like, that's them. Anyway, I get excited about those things. Going on, it says this, verse 6, When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Don't worry, I'm going to keep going. Uh, When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Maheliel. Uh, Kenan lived after he fathered Maheliel, uh, that's definitely how you say it, 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahelelel, said it differently, had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahelelel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. I know, we're going to keep going. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There's a pattern. This dude lived for X number of years, then he had a kid, and then he lived for X number of years, and that dude lived for X number of years, and then he had a kid, and then he lived for X number of years, on and on and on, and then suddenly the pattern stops. Something extraordinary happens to break and cut into the narrative in such a way that the pattern changes. Something now is different. And so what is it about Enoch that, that changes the pattern? What is it about Enoch that, that the author changes how he is writing and the details that he is giving us? What did we see in verse 22? It says, Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Enoch was there's something unique about him, something different in him. And again, that it, that it cuts the storyline in half in a sense. And says, wait, no, pause. This is significant enough for us to look at, significant enough for, to give us attention. Enoch walks with God in such a way that God then takes him. Again, he, just, he doesn't experience death. He just gets taken. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm reading this and I'm saying, wow, what a tremendous deal. He walked with God. God was so pleased that God took him. But it's almost a little bit like, and, and? There's no more details, Right? Well, what we can see is that Enoch lived his life with God spiritually, which led Enoch to living with God literally, right? We see that point, like he, he lived with God spiritually for his whole life, which then eventually led for him to, to live with God physically. But again, it's like, I feel like I'm, I'm asking more questions, like, well, how did he walk with God? What were the details of that? I, again, the issue is not the Bible. The Bible is sufficient. The issue is me, right? So, so what does this mean? I think it begs more questions, and really the question that we're going to to really dig in in the rest of our time together this morning is, well, what does it actually mean to walk with God? Really, it's just, they did it. It's like, okay, and how? (laughs) So again, what we're going to do, we're just going to begin to dive in, and, and anytime the Bible brings up a question in you, we have to be reminded that the Bible will answer the very same question. The Bible is sufficient and good to rise up challenges within us. I think sometimes when we're reading the scriptures, and I know I say this quite a bit, we're reading scriptures, we come across something we don't understand, and we get scared. It's like, no, this doesn't make sense. Is God not true? And it's like, no, 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 no. God God is correct. God is sufficient. God is enough. The Word of God is sufficient. Every question that the Word of God brings up in us, the Word of God can then answer. Ultimately, the answer is found in the person God Himself in the flesh in Christ, right? So again, what is what? What are we looking at here? How do we, if this is so important that Enoch was taken up, how do we go about walking with God? Well, I think uh, we can go back actually to Genesis chapter three. And begin to sort of lay a foundation of what it is to walk with God. Actually, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the first instance, the first time language uh, is used that suggests walking and and God and a connection to God. And so what we see here in Genesis chapter 3, immediately after Adam and Eve have sinned, right? They've disobeyed the commandment of God. That's what sin is. Sin is a rebellion against the standard and the commandments of God. Adam and Eve have disobeyed. It says this in verse 7 when the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Adam and Eve sin, they hide. God says, where are you? here's the foundation that we begin to lay here. While the text doesn't explicitly say it, I think it would suggest that God walking in the garden was a customary and a common thing. Why would God begin walking in the garden after sin entered the world, right? Wouldn't this be a a thing that he would do? And you have to imagine as God, as he doesn't see them, it seems atypical, it seems like irregular. And so what does God say? Where are you? Right, The norm, the standard was that when God walked in the garden, just again, God literally walking in the garden, walking with you and me and Adam and Eve are like, hey, what's up, God? And they're taking a stroll like you would take a walk with your spouse or with your friend or with your children. That's what used to happen. And so what this means is that we were designed to walk with God. We were designed to, to have this intimate, personal walk with God. Now, I think we have to ask a little bit, okay, well, again, what does walk actually mean? If you look into some some studies, what you'll see is the word walk is used 511 times just within the Old Testament. It's a whole lot of times. However, there are several instances where walk is used to mean this intimacy and this relationship. It's used figuratively. To walk with God is to have this intimate, deep, personal relationship. The words that I mention all of the time on our windows that, that we want to, to strive to be, but we will not fully attain that. It's a ridiculous goal. We want to be a church where no one walks alone. That is a figurative use of the word walk. And what it suggests to me is that we want to be with people. We want to be in deep relationship with others. And that's what this means, deep relationship with God. And we were designed to have deep relationship, connectedness with God. But here's the tragedy Sin disrupts and destroys our walk with God. And again, we see it right here, don't we? The design was, walk with me. All of a sudden they sin, they hide. God says, where are you? When we sin, sin that is not paid for by Christ, it disrupts our walk with God. So much so that God then looks at Adam and Eve and he says, you can no longer be in my presence because of your sin. What does he do? He expels them out of the Garden of Eden because God and sin cannot mix. It's like oil and water cannot be together. And so he expels them. Sin disrupts our walk with God. Now, what then do we do? We've got a sin problem. Right? We've got an issue that we have to, how to, if I'm designed to be walking with God, and that's best for my soul, and I'm longing to be walking with God, and the sin is preventing me from from walking with God, how do I get rid of the sin issue so that I can go back to walking with God? Faith in Jesus is how we begin our walk with God. Because, why? When we trust in Jesus, and this is the foundational basics of the gospel, is that Jesus in his all sufficiency, Jesus in his perfect nature, sinless, without flaw, without error, he walked among us. And he did it perfectly. He lived in such a way that he had no sin, and so God views him and understands him as righteous because Jesus is righteous. And then when Jesus willingly goes to the cross, what happens is Jesus says, this guy's sin, my personal sin. Y'all sin, everybody's sin. Jesus says, go ahead and give that to me, and then, Father, punish me for their sin. Punish me instead of them. You see, the reality is sin deserves punishment. Sin deserves the wrath of God. I know we don't like to hear that, but that's the reality. The Bible teaches that that God pours his wrath out upon sin, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin, so what you and me might become the righteousness of God. And so what that means is that on the cross, Jesus is bearing our sin, he's wearing our sin upon himself. What is that sin you have in mind that you've done? Can you think of it? The list is too long. Think of something very specific and then say, No, I'm going to place that upon Jesus. Jesus, you you were punished for me. Jesus in my place. That's the summary of the gospel. And so we must begin our walk with God by first placing our faith in Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you're like, Okay, what is this thing he's talking about? Step one do you know Jesus? Step before that almost, like step like 0.1. I don't know where I'm going with this. I do, but anyway, my terminology is getting all mixed up. Do you understand you're a sinner in need of a Savior? We have to understand we're sinners in need of a Savior prior to being able to look to Jesus to say, save me from my sin. Right? Do we understand that we have spiritual need? Do we understand that sin disrupts our walk with God and we were designed to walk with God? And if you do, then your next step is to place your faith in Jesus. And again, that's not magical words. It's a condition of the heart to say, Jesus, I trust you. Having faith in Jesus is not a mental assent that Jesus existed. Having faith in Jesus is trusting Jesus to take personally your sin upon himself and to die for you. Right? Just to be very, very clear. Now, again, it's like, okay, dude, we get it. But how do I walk with God? How do I actually go about doing this? Again, the Bible hasn't really given us very, very clear details yet, but I think we're going to get there. Very practically speaking, I'll begin with this. Walking with God involves exercising our blessings. Again, we're talking about this intimate personal relationship. Walking with God involves exercising our blessings. Now imagine, if you will, for a moment. Let's say I'm asleep in my bed in the middle of the night. And imagine a stranger walks into my bedroom and I wake up. What's going to happen? It's going to get violent, right? A stranger, like somebody's going to die. Like it's not going to be good, right? Like the, the stranger is going to be physically harmed because at that point in the middle of the night, if a stranger walks into my bedroom, they are an enemy. They're an enemy. Now, Imagine the same setup, the same scenario. I'm asleep in my bed. Now imagine one of my sons who are three and five walks into my room and I wake up. Same situation, different relationship, everything changes. Let's say my son walks in and he says, Daddy, I'm scared. Instead of violence, what happens is I make room for him in the bed and I, I bring him in and I hold him close and I pray over him and say, Jesus is in control, buddy. We are safe. God loves us. He has a plan for our lives. You're okay. You're with me. your Father. I'm going to protect you. I love you. It's a personal note for me this week. The relationship is different. And so now, through faith in Jesus, this is the stunning blessing that is ours, that walking with God means exercising or or doing or practicing this blessing. Hebrews 4, verse 16, it says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Walking with God means you understanding that the relationship between you and God through faith in Christ has changed. You now can walk into the presence of God boldly and with confidence. And we can do that through prayer. That's what I'm talking about here. We can do that through prayer. And eventually, one day when this life comes to an end, we will do that literally. Remember, Enoch walked with God spiritually and then he walked with God literally. The same is true for you and me. You and I, we can walk with God spiritually through prayer. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. God hears us and he says, come here, you child of mine. But if we try and approach the throne of grace without Christ, remember the stranger in the bedroom? That's what happens. If we interact with a living God apart from Christ, we will be found insufficient. We will be found guilty of our sin. We will be destroyed. But through faith in Christ, we enter in the presence of God, and he says, come here, my child. The question then we have to ask is, do we spend time in prayer? Do we have a pattern and a rhythm of going to God and saying, God, this is all that's on my heart. I'm going to, like a child, present these things to you, Father, and I'm going to trust that you're good and that you hear them and that you respond. I think sometimes we have this lie in our heads that says, God doesn't want to hear about my struggles. That's a lie. God already knows them. And what he wants to do is to To have you walk with him in those things. Prayer is this pouring our heart out to God and saying, God, I need you. It is an acknowledgement of the need we have for God. An acknowledgement of saying, God, here is all that I have. I trust you. I need you. The second thing I would say this, what does it mean to actually walk with God? God has given us 66 books we call these things the Bible. There's like 927 chapters. Send me an email. I'm probably wrong on that number. right? There's so many chapters. And it's, the scriptures say it's literally the breath of God. God has given you his words. Like the author and the creator of all things. He has said, here, I care about you so much that I'm going to give you instructions. Sometimes we say, I wish God would just speak to me. And it's like, well, I mean, I don't know. There's quite a bit here. He's speaking to you. Are you engaging in it? He wants you to know him. So much so that, again, he, he lived and died for us. And he gave us this incredible book that has the power to shape us and to change us and transform us because the word of God is living and active. Having the Bible and not engaging in it is like having a winner, winning lottery ticket worth a gazillion dollars and never cashing it. Like, oh, I won! Just tuck that baby away. Life-changing. We leave it on the shelf. Walking with God, time in prayer, time in God's word. How else do we then walk with God, this intimate relationship with God? Walking with God involves systematically de- com- uh, systematic decompartmentalization. It's the longest word I've ever written on the screen. Right? Systematic decompartmentalization. Here, here's what I mean by this. In, I think, the American church, oftentimes we say, yeah, I've got my church stuff I do, and then I've got the rest of life. I've got this activity that I go to, and then I've got everything else. Walking with God is saying, no, as I go into my job, whatever, my, my kids' sports thing, all, everything, I'm, wa- I'm in that situation with God. I'm bringing God with me because as believers in Christ, God has deposited his Holy Spirit in us. We are a living temple. I have a good friend who says we're portable temples of God. We're bringing the presence of God wherever we are going. Just incredible. And so I would ask, how would your work situation change if you brought with you the presence of God into that situation? How would your parenting change if consistently you prayed and said, God, give me wisdom in this moment. How do I parent this little one and love this little one to shape them to be more like you? As again, as we go into our jobs, we go into difficult situations, we go into the grocery store. Whatever we're doing, we are the people of God. We talked about that last week. We are the living body of God. That means wherever we are in the community, whatever we're doing, we're going as representatives of God Almighty. We need to decompartmentalize and understand that God is in everything and that we need to acknowledge and obey God in everything. Right. Lastly, I would say this, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 23, I'm going to read it from the screens, it says this, and he said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself, this is Jesus speaking, take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Right, we got one more. Uh, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now why do I bring this up in this context of walking with God? What, what does that actually mean? What does that look like? Walking with God involves surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. This concept of lordship its a little bit maybe unfamiliar to us. Walking with God means me saying I am not in control of my life, Jesus is in control of my life. Lordship is an acknowledgement to say, Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done, we know that prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. What that means, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life, as it is in heaven. If we individually, personally say, God, I want to repent of being in control of my life, and rather say, Jesus, you are far better at my life than I am, what will happen is our life will begin to change. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Or are you? How do I answer that question? Are there things that you know that you need to be doing that you're saying no to because you don't want to? That's hard. And I want to be clear as well. Activity without intimacy leads to misery. And yet, if Jesus is saying, you need to obey me here, You need to do this. And we're saying, no, 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 no. What that reveals is that you're actually the Lord of your life and not Jesus. And that is a difficult thing to come to terms with. And I'm not saying we're not gonna wrestle with that. We're not gonna struggle with that. We are. It is incredibly hard to remove ourselves from the throne of our lives and place Jesus there instead. But I think all of us can probably think of something Where we're holding on so tightly and we're just pushing Jesus out just a little bit like, no God, not this, not this, not this, just not yet. You can have this maybe, this thing, but no, I'm holding on so tightly to this, I'm not going to let you have it. Walking with God means giving all of those things to Jesus, surrendering and saying, here Jesus, I trust you in this more than I trust me. I trust your power more than I trust mine. I trust your goodness and your, doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It's not going to be. Reality check following Jesus is hard, but it's worth it. It is worth it. And here's the thing God knows already. And you may be getting down on yourself. You're like, man, I'm such a screw up. You are. You are. But God doesn't see you that way. Through faith in Christ, He doesn't see you as a screw up, He sees you as a son or a daughter. And like my little boy walking into the room, he says, come here. Let's let's deal with this. We fail, we mess up, we sin. Jesus says, I still forgive you. He didn't die for us and save us because we were awesome. He died for us and saved us because we were broken and dead in our sin, and he desired to rescue us. And the same is true even after we've placed our faith in Christ. We're still going to sin. We're still going to have flaws. We're still going to have issues. And Jesus says, I love you still. I trust you. And at the same time, we need to put to death what is sinful in us out of a response to what Jesus has done for us, not out of duty, but out of relationship. Such a difference there. So then the final question this morning as we ask, how do I walk with God? What's the next step you can take in your walk with Jesus? What's the next step? We, we talk about next steps all the time here on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's baptism for you. We do this every month. We've got one coming up. Uh, it's already February, which blows my mind. We'll have one coming up uh, at the end of February. If you need to take a, this is a, I'm, I, I'm a believer in Jesus, and what, what's happened so often is like, but I'm I, sitting up there in that tongue in front of all them people. No, thank you. Right. This is an opportunity to say, I'm going to surrender my kingdom come, my will be done, and say, Jesus, your will be done. And I'm just picking baptism because, again, it's a, it's a command of the Scripture. The Bible says we need to do that. It's okay. Well, that's an opportunity to be obedient. Maybe for you it's something very simple to say, I'm going to start um, praying as I go to work. Instead of listening to sports radio or news radio or whatever, next time I'm driving to work, I'm going to start praying. That is an opportunity to say, I'm going with God wherever I'm going. There's a next step that you can take. Maybe for you, it's, it's faith for the first time. What is a next step that you can take? Maybe it's sharing the gospel, whatever it may be. How can you be obedient to the Lord so that you walk in intimate relationship with God? That's what this core value of spiritual intimacy is all about, understanding we are His and we can walk with Him. And then the beauty is that one day we will be in His presence fully. Fully who will understand it all, and will behold his glory. And for the rest of all things, we will be worshiping him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together, church. God, we love you. We trust you. And I ask, Lord, this morning that you would allow us to to have an awareness of what's the next step I need to take to walk with you, Jesus. Not out of duty or obligation, but out of a heart-level desire to have greater intimacy with you. Father, by the power of your Spirit, would you allow us to be a people who surrender our lives to you, who say, I am not in control, Jesus, you are. I am not king of my life, Jesus, you are. If we have unrepentant sin this morning, while we are forgiven in Christ, our sins past, present, and future, the Bible says that we need to repent. And if we say there is no sin in us, that we are without sin, then the truth is not in us. For some of us this morning, we need to repent and Repenting is really just giving up our own lordship and saying, Jesus, you instead. This thing that I'm holding on to, Jesus, I give it to you. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for the grace that you extend to me. Whatever your next step is, would you take a step this morning? Father, we love you, we praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.